Is Bible prophecy a toxic subject? That's what one preacher recently claimed from his pulpit. He pronounced that studying Bible prophecy is a toxic activity, escapism, while the world is in such turmoil over climate change and other matters. In many churches, there's an alarming indifference concerning the Lord's return. That means the second coming of Jesus, which is the central focus of Bible prophecy. What happened to the great sense of awe and expectation of the coming of the Lord that characterized the early church? Is studying prophecy toxic, or is it, in fact, a tonic, providing blessed hope that Jesus will soon return? The Jerusalem Channel is made possible by viewer support. Thanks for watching. Hello, I'm Christine Dark. Too many theologians, preachers, and Christians are blindly espousing the belief that the world shouldn't expect the Lord's return anytime soon. Instead, endless speculation about the Antichrist goes on, while the blessed hope of the Lord's appearing is either ignored or it's a topic conveniently pushed to the sidelines, considered something irrelevant and way off in the future. However, throughout church history, believers have always had a strong sense that they were living in the time of the Lord's return. Now the skeptics say, how can you be so sure that we're living in the last days? And to that question I answer, well, not every generation has been privileged to behold the signs we've seen concerning the nation of Israel and the Jewish recapture of Jerusalem. Conditions that Jesus in the Bible said would herald his second coming. Unfortunately, many institutional churches don't talk about the signs and the birth pains of Messiah. But sometimes, even the secular newspapers do, with headlines warning the general public that God intends to intervene in world history. For example, here's a headline from a secular newspaper in Britain. Three signs that biblical prophecies about the end of the world and the Messiah are coming true. Now, the expression end of the world doesn't literally mean the annihilation of the world, but it means rather the end of history as we know it and the dawning of the messianic kingdom promised by God to Jesus. The Messiah upon his return will rule this world for a thousand years from Jerusalem, from the throne of his ancestral father, King David. So this world is not going to end until Jesus has ruled for a thousand years of righteous government. He's going to teach corrupt politicians how to behave honorably. By the way, the three signs mentioned in the newspaper article concern, number one, the birth of a red heifer in Israel. That spotless cow is needed to reinstitute sacrificial temple worship. Secondly, fish spotted in sinkholes at the overwhelmingly salty Dead Sea. And the third sign was the appearance of a snake at Jerusalem's western wall. The snake wiggling out of the stones of where Jews pray is admittedly a rather nebulous sign, but the rabbis considered it an omen of perilous times.
However, concerning fish found in sinkholes around the Dead Sea, this is indeed an amazing sign. This is because in the Old Testament, the prophet Ezekiel foresaw the Dead Sea flourishing into life again. According to Ezekiel chapter 47, in the future, there's going to be a very great multitude of fish. The Dead Sea area contained the notorious cities in biblical times known as Sodom and Gomorrah, which were cursed and judged with fire and brimstone. And during the inferno, the wavering wife of the biblical character Lot was instantly ossified into a pillar of salt. But now this same area is coming to life again and beginning to fulfill the prophecy of Ezekiel who prophesied about the land flourishing and blooming when the Jewish people return. So what should a Christian's position be about Bible prophecy? Well, the consistent teaching of the New Testament is that Christians should be preparing ourselves spiritually like a bride gets ready for her wedding. And we're to be looking expectantly for the imminent appearing of the Lord for His collective bride, the church. The fact that the church has been waiting for the Lord for nearly 2,000 years in no way disproves the faithfulness of the Lord's promise to return, nor does it cast any doubt upon the validity of the Word of God. In fact, the Apostle Peter anticipated that scoffers would mock the promise of the Lord's return. He said, don't forget that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. You see, God exists outside of time, so 2,000 years is not a lot of time on God's calendar. No genuine believer should scoff at the doctrine of imminency, meaning the Lord's any moment appearing. Mockery is to be expected from atheists or hardened sinners, but genuine believers should know that historic, orthodox Christian doctrine includes the imminency of the Lord's appearing. You just can't throw out that doctrine as if it doesn't matter any more than you would, God forbid, throw out the virgin birth or other essential doctrines concerning the atonement. The reason for the Lord's delay is that more souls should be saved. And we can hasten his return by fulfilling the heart's desire of the Lord of the harvest that laborers would bring in a great harvest of souls from the nations. God is wanting for his church to let go of finances to fund the end time harvest. James chapter 5 warns the wealthy not to store up treasures in the last days because hoarding treasures withholds wages from God's laborers in the harvest fields of the nations. In fact, James 5.4 says the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. The harvesters cry because we want to do exploits for God, but we are often limited by the lack of funding. Well, part of the confusion surrounding biblical prophecy is the refusal of many Bible teachers and believers to acknowledge a doctrine in the Holy Scriptures that's called the rapture, for lack of a better word. The word rapture is derived from the Latin Bible to represent the Greek word in 
1 Thessalonians 4.17, meaning to snatch, to seize, to be caught up into heaven. The rapture or the translation of the saints relates to the church of true born-again believers. When the dead in Christ shall rise, and then the living believers will literally be snatched away, caught up, raptured, translated into the atmosphere, and changed into our immortal bodies without death, meeting the Lord in the air. This doctrine is not a man-made doctrine, but it is clearly revealed in the scriptures. And for example, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. These scriptures can't be disregarded and swept under the carpet, as it were, or cut out of the Bible just because they don't fit a person's eschatology. Do you want to know what these verses say? Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verses 51 to 52, this passage says, Paul speaking, Behold, I tell you a mystery. Not all of us will die, but all of us will be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For he said, the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. Then will be fulfilled the saying, death is swallowed up in victory. And 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 16 to 17 declares, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then afterwards, we who are alive and are still on earth will be caught up, that's that word rapture, in their company amid clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Well, these verses express expectancy and hope of the any moment now imminent appearing of the Lord. Furthermore, 1 Thessalonians 1.10 exhorts us to wait for God's Son from heaven, even Jesus, who delivered us from the wrath to come. You see, the focus of the great snatch, the rapture, is upon believers. On the other hand, the second coming of Jesus to earth, not in the atmosphere, but to the earth when his feet will stand again on the Mount of Olives, that doesn't focus primarily upon believers, but upon sinners. He's coming again to earth to judge the nations. And when Jesus returns to earth, the Antichrist and the Antichrist false prophet will be cast into the lake of fire. Satan will be bound in the abyss. The nations will be gathered and judged. And Israel will behold and receive their true Messiah. Israel will mourn for him and put their trust in their true Messiah. All of this yet to come is revealed in some of my favorite scriptures. For example, Zechariah 12.10 and Romans 11.26. Zechariah 12.10 describes the outpouring of God's Holy Spirit upon Jerusalem and the resulting revelation and opening of the eyes of the people's understanding to behold Jesus as their crucified Savior and Messiah. And Romans 11:26 declares that all of Israel will eventually be saved. Hallelujah. So there is a big disparity in the biblical descriptions of the rapture event in the atmosphere and the actual second coming of Jesus to earth. 
Both scenarios are involved in the last days, but the appearing of the Lord in the atmosphere is also referred to in Hebrews 9.28, which says, interesting verse, Unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time. Now the second coming of the Lord to rule the world is a much larger event referred to, for example, in Revelation 1.7. Behold, he's coming with clouds and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. The Apostle Paul told the Thessalonian church to wait for God's Son from heaven, to be watchful and comforting one another with the hope of the Lord's coming. All of these exhortations taught the church to believe that the return of Jesus is always imminent. Nothing has to happen prophetically before the Lord may appear suddenly to claim his bride, the church. I've spoken about this in previous programs in which the abduction of believers is compared by Jesus to Jewish wedding customs. The bridegroom arrives unexpectedly at midnight to steal away his bride, to take her to the place he's been preparing for her. In fact, in Jesus' parable of the wise and foolish virgins, some weren't ready, but some were. On the other hand, the second coming of the Lord physically to earth requires certain prophecies to be fulfilled concerning, for example, the appearance of the Antichrist, the rebuilding of the temple, and the appearance of the two witnesses. But the great snatch, the rapture, doesn't require anything to be fulfilled. It's a signless event that can happen suddenly at any time just as the people in Noah's day were caught by the flood, even though they had been warned. The doctrine of the Lord's imminent sudden appearing teaches us to be ready and not to play around with sin. This message of preparation is found in both covenants of the Bible. For example, in the Hebrew scriptures in Daniel 12.10, it speaks of a prophecy being fulfilled in the end times, saying that many will purify themselves, but the wicked will act wickedly and will not understand, but the wise will understand. And in this regard over in the New Testament, 1 John 3 is an important chapter. The Apostle John told us, Beloved, we know that when the Lord appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And John said, everyone who has this hope purifies himself and makes himself ready just as the Lord is pure. So the doctrine of the imminency of the coming of the Lord is highly important as a powerful, sanctifying and purifying effect upon watchful, wise believers. We certainly cannot live carelessly if we know he could come at any moment, today, tonight, or right now. 1 John 3, 3 says, And all who have this eager expectation will keep themselves pure. Well, because the Apostle Paul was waiting with expectation for the imminent return of the Lord, he gave a wake-up call to the church. He set the trumpet to his mouth, proclaiming that the Lord's return is nearer than when we first believed. And now it's nearly 2,000 years nearer. Every day, every moment shortens the time before the Lord's appearing.
In order to make good use of our time, Paul pleaded in Romans chapter 13, wake up, wake out of sleep. Now it is high time. Our salvation is nearer. The night is far spent and the day is at hand. Notice that Paul didn't admonish the believers to dig in and prepare for the great tribulation period and to fortify themselves against the rule of the Antichrist. He said the opposite. He said the night is far spent, the day is at hand. And Paul sent a wake-up call to the church at Ephesus. In Ephesians chapter 5, he also wrote, Awake, you who sleep and arise from the dead, and Messiah will give you light. So he said, see that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. So when we know in our hearts that the Lord could appear at any moment, we're motivated to avoid sin, to keep short accounts with God, and to eliminate things from our lives that are displeasing to the Lord. The doctrine of eminency naturally just calls for holy living. I'll never forget years ago, going to see a movie called Rosemary's Baby. It was blasphemous even in those days. And I recall having a feeling of great unease as I sat in the movie theater, knowing that if the Lord returned at that moment, I wouldn't be found in the right place. Although I was a born-again believer, I was convicted by the Holy Spirit to clean up my act and to be careful of what I would allow my eyes, ears, and spirit to take in. Besides having a purifying effect on our lives, I want to mention some more points of why Bible prophecy study is important. My friend, Pastor Derek Walker's great book, The Panorama of Prophecy, makes the point that the study of Bible prophecy actually enhances our mental health. This is because Bible prophecy gives us the big picture the grand scheme and panoramic view of God's eternal purposes. We can become so caught up in our own little world that we may become too self-centered and lose the bigger picture of how God is working all things out to fulfill His plan. Secondly, the study of Bible prophecy helps us to understand history. It helps us to understand the destinies of our nations, the times and the seasons. And related to understanding history is a third point. The study of the Bible and archaeology go hand in hand, showing that God is active in fulfilling prophecy. In fact, somebody could start a news site in Israel called Archaeology Daily because it seems every day new discoveries in the field of archaeology are proving the validity of the Bible. Just this week, an article in the Times newspaper said that scientists have found the ancient state of Edom, which they thought was just a Bible story. According to the book of Genesis, Edom existed before kings ever ruled Israel, and it encompassed parts of what's now southern Jordan and Israel. The Edomites resisted and fought the Israelites, becoming implacable foes. In the Bible, the Edomites regularly played the role of the bad guy. By tradition, they were descended from Esau, whose twin brother, Jacob, God preferred and became the father of the tribes of Israel. A remarkable piece of scientific detective work has found evidence of the state of Edom 
that flies in the face of many historians who previously dismissed Edom as a myth. Scientists and archaeologists analyzed slag heaps left by the copper mines in Edom. They found signs that mines in different parts of the region were run by one central authority, the state of Edom. Just as the Bible claimed, there was a powerful and technologically advanced rival standing in the way of the early Israelite kingdom. Well, lead archaeologist Tom Levy, a professor at the University of California, told the Times newspaper that his team was surprised that the archaeological record coincided with many aspects of the Hebrew Bible. Well, it may have been a surprise to the professor, but not a surprise to evangelicals who believe in the validity and inerrancy of the Word of God. People often decry the Bible as being full of myths, but modern Christian apologists make the case that the Bible and science are not incompatible. Some of the Bible stories, such as creation, may sound overly simplistic, but the God of the universe uses Sunday school language to describe huge scientific and philosophical concepts so that even an uneducated person can comprehend the truth and receive the gift of eternal life. Well, I'm so happy that archaeologists continue to dig up so many discoveries and evidence from the good book. For example, a stone slab discovered in northern Israel and dating from the 9th or 8th century BC has an Aramaic inscription interpreted as referring to the killing of Jehoram, son of Ahab, as described in the second book of Kings. And in 2013, the Israel Antiquities Authority claimed that the remains of a fortified city 20 miles from Jerusalem date from the time of King David and include a palace where David stayed. We have visited that site and seen the wealth of discoveries. A seal found in Jerusalem dating to the 8th century BC was inscribed in Paleo-Hebrew as belonging to Natan Melech, servant of the king. In the Bible, in the book of 2 Kings, a person by that name, Natan Melech, Nathan Melech in English, is indeed mentioned as an official in the court of King Josiah. And excavations in Jerusalem have found arrowheads of the type used by the Babylonian army. These arrowheads appear to corroborate biblical accounts of the conquest of the holy city by Nebuchadnezzar in the early 6th century BC. And one of my very favorite discoveries was the discovery of a golden bell from the garment of a priest in the temple. You can even go to the website of the City of David in Jerusalem to listen to the sound of the tiny gold bell that was once sewn unto the hem of the priest's garment. And just recently, one of the earliest Christian mosaics depicting Jesus' feeding of the 5,000 has been unearthed during an excavation overlooking the Sea of Galilee. The discovery of the so-called burnt church has enthralled archaeologists who spent this past summer combing it for historical evidence. A fire destroyed the church in 700 AD, but the mosaic paved floor was remarkably preserved by a layer of ash. So exciting. We look forward to visiting that on one of our tours. Well, I want to say that Bible prophecy is a tonic because it gives us motivation 
and inspiration not to waste time. When we realize that there's a permanent world to come with eternal values at stake, we're able to grasp the bigger picture concerning our destiny in God. We can look up and not be troubled by the upheaval all around us in the world. The study of Bible prophecy also provides strong warnings to be awake and alert because of the doctrine of imminency. In the scriptures, the church is never admonished to anticipate the great tribulation. Yes, we are to expect persecution, but the church was not instructed by the Lord to prepare for the time known as the great tribulation. Rather, we're admonished to look for the Lord's sudden appearing and to pray that we'll be counted worthy to escape the horrors coming upon the earth. According to the New Testament, nobody but the Father in heaven knows when the Lord will suddenly appear. So believers in Messiah have always been expected to stay alert, to be ready for a sudden appearing of Jesus our bridegroom like a thief in the night to steal his precious jewels from the earth. Because of the doctrine of the imminence of the Lord's return, the New Testament prescribes certain characteristics that should describe every true believer. And some of these characteristics are patience and discipline concerning our tongues, as mentioned in James chapter 5. James, the half-brother of the Lord Jesus, wrote to be patient and strengthen your hearts because the Lord's coming is near. He said, don't grumble and complain about one another so that you will not be judged. He said, look, the judge is standing at the door. Of course, increasingly, prayer is important because, furthermore, 1 Peter 4, 7 admonishes us that the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and of sound judgment, watchful in your prayers. So it's a relief that we don't need to get caught up in the cares of this world, protesting about climate change and the environment, because the Apostle Peter wrote, Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be? in holy conduct, and godliness. Yes, God is going to renovate this planet. But meanwhile, our modus operandi is to stir ourselves up to love and good works, not forsaking the assembling together as some do, but exhorting one another as we see the day approaching. Although in this boot camp of a world, Believers are promised trouble and tribulation before we die or before we're translated to glory. Nevertheless, the good news is that God did not appoint believers to his end time wrath. I'm speaking of the day of wrath during the great tribulation of Bible prophecy. The sudden appearing of Messiah to snatch his remnant church to glory is our blessed hope, causing us to wake up and to sober up. So let's stay alert. Our redemption draws near. And as we close today, I want to ask, where do you stand with the Lord? Are you ready and watching eagerly for his imminent appearing? The Bible teaches that if you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, and if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you shall be saved. The Bible teaches that the gospel was written so that you may know that you have eternal life. So be assured of your salvation. 
However, these dangerous days demand serious discipleship and watchfulness. Let's stay in touch on the social media or at our website, exploits.tv, where you can click online to find details of our ebooks or sign up to receive our free magazine, Exploits. Thank you for praying for us as we contend for the faith and pray earnestly for the peace of Jerusalem. I'm Christine Darig. Shalom and Maranatha.